This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Well, welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I'm Brent Nelson and Prius, joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? Doing pretty good. How are you? Yeah, doing well. We're uh, we're surviving. Everybody is rolling on to uh, fall break around here. Fall break begins really kind of like this weekend and then next week. So the kids are excited. We're going to try to do this little thing where we split them apart. And half of them go stay with aunt, uncle, slash cousins for a night. And the other half are with us. And then we'll have them reverse order. And we'll have the other ones with us. And the others will be with cousins and aunt and uncle. So getting a little little staycation for fall break. So it'll break up the routine a little bit. That sounds nice. That sounds real nice. How long do they get for fall break nowadays? One week. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. I don't remember getting that. That's that's pretty nice. <laughs> I know. I never I never got fall break either. I'm kind of jealous. Yeah. I I remember at law school we got 2 days for fall break and I think it was my it was my first year actually in law school. I think that they implemented it. And we realized that they only implemented it because um professors needed more time to grade all of our midterms. So it really wasn't a fall break to us. It was more of a here you go to professors. But we took it and we took very much advantage of it. I remember I took a cruise on one of my fall breaks. I'm like, this is this is glorious. I'm never going to get this again. When when as adults do we get fall break? No, I know. Never. (laughs) I know. I I felt that way, too, when I was in law school. Well, we didn't have fall break, as, as I recall. But um, every time there was like a winter break or spring break or then like the break during the summer, although I was working all all throughout law school in the summers. Um, I always felt that way, too, where I was like, man, I got to soak this up because this is it. You know, like after I do this, I'm not getting this break again in my life. I'll never have like three weeks off of unstructured time again in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I, I think we should implement this policy. You know, we could start. <laughs> yeah, we should start our own. <laughs> yeah, we should. All we need to do is convince people in Congress not to pass new laws that have an effective date somewhere around the end of the year. And then we can implement the we take a winter break. Yeah. Yeah. That that might be a hard sell. But I mean, they they might like a break, too. So that's we just have to Seems frame like it the right yeah. way. You know, right. all right. This is going to be my 2022 project. All right. <laughs> yeah. You're going to write letters <laughs> to all your representatives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to work. I'm very confident. We got this. We got this. So I thought what we would do is just kind of give a little bit of an update because things have been in our world kind of hectic in a, I guess, in a good way. Hectic is possibly overselling it. Just busy, uh, productive, doing things for people because of the possibility of changes in the tax laws. Um, And I think I'm still talking to people who are like, Really? Are you sure? Is is it really going to happen? And I keep trying to convince them 
uh, you know, this is literally the Democrats negotiating among themselves. So it's not like they're trying to convince Republicans to go along. They just have to convince themselves that they're going to go along with this. And by the way, two things are still true. Number one, I haven't heard anybody, unless you have, Rachel, suggesting that these proposed tax changes are not the tax changes that are going to make it into the final bill, whatever version of the bill that is. And second, the minimum that they're planning on spending is $1.5 trillion, not zero. 1.5 trillion. That's the minimum. So yeah, it's still going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I completely agree with you. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about this and I believe it was, so yesterday was October 4th. And so uh, President Biden gave a speech about the progress of the infrastructure bill and the uh, reconciliation bill, which a lot of people talk about them just one in the same since the Democrats are trying to push them through together. And a lot of people were getting vibes like this might not happen. And the market was freaking out because of it, because we don't know about the, the debt ceiling and all these big deadlines coming up. And I was really telling them, you know, I, I, th I think this is going to happen no matter what. I think this is going to happen. You have to think about kind of the landscape where we're at. Next year is a midterm year. And so Democrats want to be able to say, look at all that we did this last year. You know, we've we've done all these um, changes to the tax code, like we said we wanted to. We have the infrastructure bill, like we wanted to. So I don't think that they're not going to let this not happen. And I think, like you were saying, when they're really just debating among themselves, yes, right now there is a lot of negotiation based on what that number is. Is it 1.5? Is it 3.5? Are we doing right in the middle at two to quarter? But really, it's among themselves. They just have to agree among themselves. There's a lot of backdoor negotiations happening that we're not seeing. And I think it's going to happen. Whether or not it's going to happen this week or it's going to happen in December, that's still to be told. But at the end of the day, I, I think this is real. All the, the you know looming advice that we've been telling our clients since last year of you have to be prepared for these tax changes, I think this really is going to be the year that we are going to see it. Yes, I agree. Obviously, you and I talk <laughs> about these things, so I think we're of the same mind on on that position. But they, for all the reasons that you're suggesting, um, this is very real and is really going to happen. The other thing that I have heard people suggest is like, well, but it's too, it's just so expensive. You know, it's it's 3.5 trillion dollars, and you know, that's that's more money than we've ever spent in the past. That's actually not true. If you go back and start adding up the overall scored costs for the tax changes, the quote unquote Trump tax cuts in uh, 2017, plus the COVID relief bills, uh, there was more than one relief bill. Those are just about $4 trillion. So yes, you got the infrastructure bill, which rings in slightly north of a trillion, plus you've got this reconciliation bill, that looks like it's going to be somewhere between 1.5 trillion and 3.5 trillion. It's not that far off of what we've spent in the past in the recent past. Now, the fact that we're talking about spending trillions of dollars rather than just mere billions of dollars is itself, at least for me, new. I don't know that I recall when we used to talk about spending trillions of dollars rather than billions of dollars, but Apparently, that's what we do now. We spend trillions of dollars at a time. It's a, it's hard for me to even fathom that amount of money. But when you're dealing with 
an almost unfathomable amount of money, I also think it means there is plenty of space for compromise and they're just they're going to reach a resolution somewhere in there. There's a compromise. Yeah. Yeah. And to your point earlier, I think I, I haven't seen any talk about the proposed tax changes of them of you know certain provisions not being in there if anything the conversation is do we add more in there you know if if we can't get to if some democrats don't want to lower that 3.5 if they don't want to compromise say at two and a quarter then all right you need to come up with more ways to bring in that money to spend 3.5 trillion and so there's been a lot of discussions on bringing back some of the provisions like eliminating step up in basis, things like that, that originally were on the chopping block that we heard about earlier in the year, those might be brought back in. So that's still kind of to be determined. Yeah, absolutely. I also think a little bit of context is helpful. So if you recall back to 2017, remember way back in 2017, the last time they did one of these big tax changes through uh, a reconciliation process. It was when the Republicans controlled the government, which is not that long ago. Uh, and when the Republicans controlled the government, they also had a very slim uh, majority in the Senate. It was it was 51 or 52. It may have been 52 votes when you added him in, in uh, Mike Pence's vote. Um, so they essentially had to pass things with every single member of the Senate going along. And when they were going through the process of putting together these Trump tax changes, which were essentially their view of uh, Trump's election mandate was to sort of deliver these proposals or these changes to the tax law. And that actually didn't happen as far as an actual bill that was brought to the floor of the House that got voted on by everybody in the House until November 2nd, or I'm sorry, November 7th. So it took until November 7th for the House to even vote on a bill. So just like today, the House has not voted on any reconciliation bills to date. And they had they had today been talking about, uh, well, sorry, not today, today, but in, in the current situation, they were talking about a deadline of September 27th to vote on a reconciliation bill potentially in the House. OK, so just timing wise, that's apples to apples here back to 2017. And then they went through several rounds of really just party line voting. I mean, these were razor, razor thin 51 to 49 type votes to pass bills in the Senate. And actually what happened was the House passed its own version in 2017 of these tax changes. The Senate then passed its own different version of the tax changes in 2017, and then they had to go through the the uh, committee or, or the uh, reconciliation conference process to reconcile the two bills and finally get an agreement on what the two bills will look like. Okay, so just, again, put this a little bit in perspective. When the Republicans controlled the government, the Republicans in the House and the Republicans in the Senate did not agree on what should be in the reconciliation bill, and they, in fact, passed different bills which they then had to reconcile together to form one bill. Then that final bill uh, it had a few little procedural hiccups. They had to vote on it a couple of times. But after they did that, it was not signed into law until December 22nd. So again, if you're taking that sort of comparing apples to apples, when the Republicans controlled the government to now, when the Democrats controlled the government, actually the process starts to look really similar. 
and because this is just the way it is. And just as in 2017, when the Republicans were negotiating among themselves and they were going to do something, I think the same is true now. The Democrats are just negotiating among, them, among themselves. This is part of the negotiating process. There's a lot of posturing going on right now between the negotiators within the different camps in the Democratic Party, but ultimately they're going to reach a resolution, just like they did in 2017. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. It's just a matter of when is it going to happen? And we have to pretend, I feel like not pretend, but we have to act like it's going to happen any day, right? Because a lot of the proposed changes are going to be effective upon the enactment date. And since we don't know that, and potentially Congress could totally come up with a lovely compromise this afternoon, and they really want to get things going, we could see this law by the end of the week. So we have to act like that's about to happen. But when you look at the timeline, like you were saying, you know, realistically, it, it could happen this week, but it's probably not going to happen this week. I actually heard that there's a, a website where you can take bets um, on when the enactment date is actually going to be. I think the leading number was um, Halloween right now. So I've kind of got Halloween in my All right, head. Nice. But but a lot of people are thinking Thanksgiving instead. So it, it completely matches up with the timeline that you were saying back in 2017. Do they take bets in Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin hit 50,000 today and I'm feeling like maybe I can afford it now. <laughs> I'll have to check for you. I'll have to check. <laughs> well, I think that, yeah, I think people could make some money if they bet uh, on something happening. You're you're totally right. I mean, it's like you have to sort of pretend like uh, this is going to happen immediately. But frankly, from my perspective and from the perspective of trying to do some planning, Every day they give us is like a godsend. I'm like, thank goodness. We have one more day. We live to fight uh, because some of the things like you're pointing out um, that have an effective date as of the enactment date uh, could be going away. So maybe let's talk a bit about that because we're that's our main focus right now with our clients is, is doing the things that would go away on the effective date. Uh, so do you want to add a little bit of gloss to that just to sort of set the context here? Yeah, absolutely. So a um, little bit of backstory. So uh, we've discussed before, but there's some changes in the proposed uh, in the proposal that will be effective as of January 1 of next year. So that would be the reduction to the estate and gift tax exemption amount. So that's good to know, good to keep in mind. You've got till the end of the year for that type of planning, use up your exemption. What we're really concerned about, though, are the changes to the grantor trust rules. And those are going to be changes that are effective as of the enactment date. So whenever the heck that's going to be next week or Halloween or Thanksgiving. And the changes to the grantor trust rules would change it so that the our, our, our preferred vehicle, I would say, for irrevocable trusts, which is creating a grantor irrevocable trust so that you get to claim both the estate tax benefits and the income tax benefits by using these trusts, that's going to go away. And how it's going away is the proposed changes are saying that any trusts that are formed before the enactment date, they're going to be grandfathered in. Those are good to go. So we want to get those types of trusts formed before the enactment date. Any trusts that are formed after the enactment date, those are no longer going to be treated as grantor trusts. In addition to that rule, one thing that really concerns us is that any contributions, and that is the exact word that they are using in the proposal, any contributions to these types of trusts, 
those are going to be deemed a taxable event. And so we don't know what a contribution is. Is that a sale? Is that a gift? We, is it just a transfer? We don't know. And so we kind of have to, again, act in a, a conservative fashion and think, okay, if that is all of the above, it is a gift, it is a transfer, it is a sale, then that means if you created the trust, say the day before the enactment date, woohoo, you got it in in time, good job, but you didn't get it funded until let's say the day after, that might not work depending on what the IRS is going to have that definition be. And so we're really right now focusing on getting these trusts formed, getting them funded before the enactment date so we can take advantage of these rules before they could be gone forever. Yeah. And and like forever in air quotes, it's like forever in the tax land, which is, yeah. <laughs> it's all, you know, it's permanent until they decide it's not permanent anymore. But yeah, the, the really scary part is that you really have to form these grantor trusts and fund them before the enactment date. Uh, because the rules kick in, yes, for trusts that are formed and funded after the enactment date, uh, but also the rules kick in for trusts that are formed or funded on the enactment date. So everything has to happen before that enactment date happens, whenever that's going to be. Sometime in the future, we just don't know. Um, the other thing is that if you, you know, if you make, let's say you formed, you, you're a good person, obviously, and then you formed your trust early. Uh, and then after the enactment date, you added additional assets to the trust. Uh, if those assets uh, qualify as a, quote, contribution, like you're saying, and we don't really know what a, quote, contribution is exactly, but if they qualify for whatever that is going to be, then it taints the trust in a way, where now it exposes the trust to estate tax when you die. If uh, if you're treated as the owner of the assets in the trust for income tax purposes, making it a, a quote unquote grantor trust to you. So with all with that bit of context and some of that might sound like uh, just gobbledygook nonsense to some people. So I apologize, but um, sort of trust us if if you don't know, just trust us that that's those are the buzzwords and that's what it what it is. But ultimately, what that means is um, we're doing a lot of trying to convince people to set up these trusts now and to not wait on funding the trust. And in fact, I, I mean, I've been telling a lot of people, I don't know if you've been telling clients the same thing, but I've basically been telling people, I also don't care how much you put in it. And it used to be that I would say, well, you really need to give more than say 5 million because the estate tax exemption was was uh, set to sunset in 2026 and go back to 5 million per person. And so if you didn't give more than 5 million, you weren't even eating into the extra amount that they threw at us beginning in, in 2018. Well, now I'm I'm telling people it doesn't matter. Whatever amount you're willing to put into one of these grantor trusts, do that. Even if it's not more than 5 million, even if you're not making use of your extra exemption, because just having these trusts in the future is going to be the golden ticket. And you've got to do it. If you don't do it, you'll never have it. Exactly. Nope. I've been saying the exact same thing. You know, it, it's great if a client is willing to use up a big chunk of their exemption. Well, let's go the whole way and let's let's gift all 11.7 million this year. Um, that's that's ideal. That's a plus, I think, in our books right there. But if you don't have that tolerance level for gifting right now, you're just not comfortable giving away that much um, of your assets, whatever you can. If it's 100,000, 200,000, whatever it may be because you want to take advantage of using these trusts. The reason why we love these trusts so much 
because they're great for planning purposes. Like I said, it gives you both the estate tax benefit and you've got the income tax benefits. This is why Congress is trying to take these away because they are wonderful tools for tax planning purposes and the IRS knows that. And so I think, you know, taking that kind of conservative approach that, you know, if contributions really do take into consideration any gifts, any con any transfers after the enactment date, which I, I would think the IRS would want to take that position just because, again, they don't like these types of trusts. Um, you've really got to take advantage of the rules while you have them now. Yeah, for sure. And the income tax benefit, just to add a little bit of context to that, is that you, the grantor of the trust, so the person who put the property into the trust, you pay the income tax bill on behalf of the trust, and then the trust, in essence, can grow income tax-free and distributions from the trust out to beneficiaries are also tax-free to the beneficiary. So the trust itself becomes sort of like a Roth IRA, at least vis-a-vis -vis the trust and the beneficiaries. Not you, because you're paying the tax bill, but vis-a-vis -vis the trust and the beneficiaries. It's like a Roth account. And just like a Roth account, then it can grow in a tax-free way, which means economically, it's going to grow faster than your other assets. And in fact, that's where you want all the growth, because that's the bucket of assets that is protected from estate tax when you die. So if you want growth to happen anywhere, it's in that bucket, not in your hands, where you're holding assets that would be exposed to estate tax when you die. So that's sort of the, the logic of the, the planning falls somewhere along those lines. The other thing that I'm seeing and trying to grapple with what people are, are what what are colloquially called irrevocable life insurance trusts, although these are really just grantor trusts. Um, but colloquially, people refer to them as irrevocable life insurance trusts or islets. And really, the way that the rules are, are written after the enactment date, you're not going to be able to do islets very easily. There might be a way to do them, but it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a bit challenging, and it's going to make administering these islets challenging. And there may be some ways you could manufacture your way into it. But the traditional islet is a trust where you would ordinarily, first of all, the, the trust would own life insurance on your life, and then you would feed money into the trust every year to pay premiums. Well, those those contributions were usually made in an amount that is equal to or less than your quote-unquote annual exclusion amount, which is $15,000 per person this year. And if that amount was was contributed and it was equal to or less than $15,000 per year per beneficiary of the trust, then you, you weren't making an additional gift to the trust. Well, this proposed legislation doesn't say gifts taint the trust. It says, quote, contributions taint the trust. And it's not clear whether contributions means only gifts or does it also include any contribution like these annual exclusion contributions to traditional islets so if you assume that it does include that, then the traditional form of an islet is not going to work in the future. And you may have to pre-fund the trust with enough cash to support paying the, the premiums on the life insurance, which can be very challenging, first of all, to figure out, and second of all, to come up with the cash to do it. Or you really have to pre-fund the trust with enough cash that it can support loan payments that will in the future fund the premium payments. And that gets a little bit tricky, too, because if, say, it's a trust that's going to buy term insurance policies on somebody's life and you're making loans into the trust and then the term policy lapses, the trust may not have the funds to pay back the loan. 
And so you run into these sort of odd economic situations where you could very easily have loans that are unpayable. And so if the trust is then forgiven of the loans, that probably is an additional contribution. It would be treated as a gift to the trust. It could taint the trust under these new rules. So there's this whole litany of issues with irrevocable life insurance trusts. So we're trying, I'm doing a lot of trying to plan for that issue of like, what are we, what are we going to do in the future when we need to fund life insurance policies that are inside of trusts and we can't make annual exclusion contributions and we might have to think very carefully about how we do loans because we have to have the wherewithal to pay off the loan at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Islets have become extremely tricky and which is crazy because I feel like islets, again, great, great vehicle for tax planning, but just really useful and really heavily used, especially when you've got closely held businesses, when you've got two or three partners in a business, they usually hold life insurance policies on each other. And it's just this kind of blows it all up a little bit where, like you said, you really have to think through it. Um, or otherwise have enough liquidity ahead of time before the enactment date to really fund this trust to make sure you can pay for the premiums for the next 20, 30, 40 years, however long it may be. So this one's this one's a tricky one. Yeah, really tricky. And it is not clear exactly what the fix to the problem is. And it's not clear whether somebody in Congress is going to be prevailed upon to create some carve-outs for some of this planning to, or so, sort of grandfather in old trusts so you can continue to do normal islet planning with old trusts. It, it's just it's just not clear. It's very hard to know exactly what to do. It's hard to know what the right answers are. It was hard enough before this, quite frankly. Like doing mm-hmm. planning was always fraught with danger and and really impossible to know what the exact best thing to do was. And now it's it's even harder with these proposed changes. With one little caveat, which would be for people of means, I think it's somewhat of a no-brainer that you would want to set up an irrevocable grantor trust and do it like now, not wait. So other than that, outside of that, it's it's very difficult to know what the exact right answer is. Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of our our trade secrets, if we're going to spill them right now, (laughs) you know, is letting our clients know that these changes are very, 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 very likely going to happen this year. You do need to act as quickly as possible if you want to take advantage of the current rules. And at the end of the day, we're only working off of a proposal. And so there are a lot of risks involved in any of these planning techniques um, just because we don't know what the outcome is going to be. And then you never know how the IRS is going to react, right? The IRS can always attack um, a transaction. They don't like it. They've always have in the past. Sometimes they're successful. Sometimes they're not. Um, So it's really just knowing how to do the transaction as safely as possible, but knowing, again, there are risks. Yeah, absolutely. And, And big risks. So one of the other issues that we've been grappling with a lot is that element of the risks of doing transactions. It's not usually the case that for a client with some means, they can just write a check and fund one of these trusts. So oftentimes they're making transfers into the trust of assets that perhaps have uh, values that are hard to determine. 
and they don't want to either number one give away more of that asset than they're intending or number two give away a value of that asset that would cause it to be treated as a taxable gift because they don't want to pay gift tax um, unexpectedly and it's hard to know exactly how to structure the transaction because sometimes in the past uh, when certain transactions that deal with valuations were done too quickly, the IRS or the courts or both were inclined to say, we will ignore the fact that you might have had several steps in this transaction that made it a completed transaction, and we will pretend you went from step A to step D, ignoring C and D, or sorry, B and C, and then giving you a, a tax outcome that's disfavorable because you you needed step B and C to make the transaction work from a valuation perspective or something else. I know that's a bit vague for anybody who's not familiar with how these things are done, so I apologize. But um, you know those sorts of transactions we might have done over the course of months or even years, not weeks, uh, but we're in a position, and certainly not days, and we're in a position now where it's like, we don't have a choice. We're either gonna do the transaction and try to come up with a way to prevent uh, surprises, especially in the valuation of, of gifts or not do it at all. And the, the downside to not doing it all is all the things you were describing, like you lose out on all these benefits. So you could do the transaction and take the risk and potentially get the benefits, but there's substantial risk that didn't even exist two weeks ago. And now all of a sudden it exists. Yeah, absolutely. Our job's fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> never boring. It's always something new, that's for sure. Um, the other thing I'm seeing a lot of are uh, folks who wanna make, they wanna make gifts, but they have assets that maybe kick off income and they don't necessarily wanna give up access to the income. And so we're trying to structure transactions that will allow them to have some access to the income, but also give away, in, in essence, what amounts to the equity in the assets. So, you know, imagine like a commercial real estate building that actually has tenants in it that pay. Um, you know, you might have a rental income stream coming back at you, but you might not need to retain the interest in the building or and certainly not the future appreciation on on the building. And so, you know, we're trying to come up with ways to structure those transactions so that the person who's relying on that rental income for their livelihood can still gift away the underlying equity in the building uh, and live, you know, not not be impoverished by making the gift. And, and that is a it's a challenging thing to work through, certainly if you're trying to fund these trusts of sufficient value to make it meaningful. You can't just give 10% of the building. That might not cut it. You might need to give away a substantial portion of the building, which means if you gave away 90% of the building and now you've lost 90% of the income, that could be detrimental to you. And so we're trying to work through those issues via either sales on the one hand or setting up what are called preferred partnerships on the other hand, um, and just trying to create structures that will maintain a, an income stream back to clients and allow them to make gifts of the underlying assets so they can make use of these trusts. And, and all of that, again, it's like these are transactions we probably would do over the course of many months and maybe even years. And now we're doing it in a week or two weeks. And it's just, it's crazy 
Well, crazy is too strong a word, but it is it <laughs> is uh, it's unique in certainly in, in the timeline of my practice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's their they're their complicated transactions. They they have to be thought through very, very carefully. And it's it's something that can't be rushed. It really can't be rushed. Unfortunately, we gotta rush it as much as we can at this point, mm-hmm. just because we need to take advantage of the rules. But uh really understanding what the assets are that someone wants to transfer. Uh possible valuations of them kind of just getting an estimate in our head but then of course knowing that that's not that might not be the number and then of course just it's a lot of it is psychological right when you are gifting away 11 million dollars that's a big chunk of someone's assets it could be mm-hmm. and so you know for a lot of our clients you know they they still need the money they obviously we all want to be able to still enjoy and take vacations and live your life as comfortably as you have been and so it's trying to balance all of those factors all in one yeah and and to your point it's it's uh a lot of complicated transactions that you don't want to rush but we're in a situation where you kind of have to rush a bit and really what i've been trying to get people to do is is rush the pieces that can be rushed and fixed later Okay, so things like, did we get the exact perfect person as the initial trustee? You can rush that because you can always change the trustee later. Did we get the trust to have the exact perfect term for how we're going to make distributions to the beneficiary? You can probably rush that because we can very likely amend that in the future. Uh, But things like how to structure the transaction from a valuation perspective, that cannot be rushed. That has to be thought through. And you have to be a bit more cautious about how you're doing that and how you're thinking through it. So it's trying to trying to push things that can be pushed quickly because they can be resolved after the fact and, you know, push those and not let those hang up the transaction and then just focus in on the pieces that really need the care and attention up front. And hopefully all of that will lead to us closing enough transactions that there will be enough people happy with us that will continue to have professional lives. (laughs) <laughs> that's the goal. Right? That's that is the goal at the end of the day. <laughs> that's right. Uh well, all right. Well, I will let you uh get back to it so we can we can get on these transactions that we're so lovingly talking about. But interesting times. I hope that's helpful for anybody who's listening. Um just for a little bit of gloss and context. We, you know, I know we talked about these proposed changes a few weeks ago. So this is sort of now we're in the trenches. A little bit of an update on like what what are we actually doing like this is the stuff we're literally doing this stuff every day uh, since we've been talking about it so uh for anybody who was wondering what are we actually doing this is literally what we're doing in our practice so now you know this, you know the cat's out of the bag but i did want to mention a bit ago we kind of crossed over the threshold of five thousand people had listened to the podcast it's unbelievably humbling and uh incredible to me, frankly, that that many people listen to the podcast. I always feel like once we do one of these things, I'll probably listen to it. I assume you might listen to it. (laughs) Maybe one or two other family members might listen to it. Beyond that, I have no expectation that anybody will listen to any of these episodes. So 5,000 is mind boggling in that perspective. Yeah, that that was a really awesome moment of like, woohoo. All right, we're, we're doing something here. We're actually getting the word out and like I said before, this is a fun project for us, and we think it's useful information. 
I, I know when I first started practicing, you know, out of law school, unfortunately, guys, law school doesn't teach you everything and don't know actually how to do your job <laughs> as a lawyer. And so when what you're really, shame, huh? I know, right? All that, all that money. Um, but it's it's really useful information for anyone just trying to get get a bit more insight into the world that that we practice in. And uh, we hope it helps other other practitioners in other areas of the law. So it's it's um, or just in our world in general. So it's been fun. And it's yeah, definitely very humbling to see that number. Yeah, and I think that's the right word. It's useful. You know, we're just trying to be useful. If, if we hopefully the information is that for different people. I've always found this particular practice or this little niche of the world to be really collaborative. And so, you know, the idea of talking about different things and talking about what we think on specific topics in this area and kind of sharing our points of view and and getting the points of view of, of other people and then just sharing that broadly uh, and openly it, to me is normal. That's just the way that this this area of the world operates. It's, it, as I said, it's very collaborative. So we're just hoping to push that along and be be useful. So hopefully everybody feels that way. And if, if they don't tell us, so we'll, we can improve. <laughs> and uh, if you do tell us that too, because that's nice occasionally <laughs> to hear that uh, people are liking what we're doing. But again, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, as I say, it, it's humbling and incredible to me that as many of you as have listened so far are listening. So we, we really appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. All right, Rachel, with that, I'll let you get on to your day. Thank you again for taking time with me. Yeah, of course. Back to work. <laughs> hey, listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.